Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you as we gather again on the Lord's Day as you make your way in. Just a couple of things by way of announcement. This coming week is a week of prayer for North American missions. We'll be receiving in the coming weeks uh, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Uh, At Southern Baptist, we collect a couple of main missions offerings every year at Christmas time, Lati moon for uh, foreign missions around Easter time. We always receive an offering for missions here on the continent of North America. We have some resources available to you if you would like to uh, to know how to pray this week for missionaries, mission efforts uh, here on the continent, North America, Canada, Mexico, you know, all those places. Let us know. I think there's some information on the table as you make your way out as well, maybe, and we uh, will get that information to you so that you can be praying this week and then praying about how the Lord would have you to give toward that special offering. Secondly, I would remind you that uh, next week, next uh, Saturday night before you go to bed, daylight savings time is upon us, more sunlight, and there was much rejoicing. Um, so make sure to set your clocks accordingly, or you'll be late or early or something to church, and you don't want to do that. Be, uh, be on time, set your clocks uh, forward there next Saturday night. We'll remind you of that throughout the week, announcements, things like that. Gang, so good to see you. Glad you're here this morning. It's going to be a great morning. It already has been, as the Lord has taught us in the Sunday School Hour. And now as we worship together, as we hear from the Lord, as we admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, a great Lord's Day together. Let me pray for us, and we'll get to it. Father, thank you so much for this day, the beauty, God, outside that just reminds us, um, God, of of your glory. Uh, Even in just faint ways, God, we see your glory on display. God, what must the new creation, what must heaven be like, God, if you give us in this life such beautiful days? Father, we anticipate, uh, we anticipate that as your people. Father, as we gather today, Father, we sing, we pray, we read your word. Father, we come face to face with Christ in the scriptures God, even in that is a foretaste of glory divine. God, as we look forward to a a great, a better, eternal day, oh God, encourage your people, equip them this day. God, for those not in Christ, draw them so sweetly to yourself. And God, may you be glorified among us. Through Christ's great name we pray, amen. As we, there we go, let's stand as we open with worship. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sin and my sorrows, He made them His very own. 
family, would you take God's word and join me in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning for our scripture reading together, Hebrews chapter 6. If you are able, would you remain standing with me for the reading of God's word this morning as we declare unto him by the public reading of scripture that we are here to hear from the Lord. Chapter 5 ended with a call to the church to be mature, to grow up in Christ. Chapter 6 ushers us into another warning in Hebrews where we are warned not to walk away, not to drift away the consequences of what happens for one who does walk away. But it then ends with a glorious encouragement to the church. And church, hear this encouragement that if you are in Christ this morning, He will keep you to the very end. You are bound by His oath, His covenant, and His blood, and that will support you as we sing in the overwhelming flood. You will, beloved, make it safely home. Let's hear from God's Word together, and as we read, we pray that God would take this eternal truth and write it upon our hearts. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so 
having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope. We have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Church family, would you be seated? And as you do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, one of the glorious promises found in your word, God, is that you will complete the work that you begin. Father, we are not kept until the end because we keep ourselves. Father, we are kept to the end. As we have sung this morning, as we have just read in Hebrews 6, Father, we are kept to the end by your oath. God, by the covenant that you have begun, established and sealed by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. That, O oh God, is how we are kept. And so, Father, I pray. I pray, God, this morning for the weary saint who walked into this building this morning and they're not sure if they're going to make it to the end. Oh God, would you draw near to them, comfort and help them. God, assure their hearts and minds that if they are in Christ, they are kept. And nothing, nothing will snatch them from the palm of your hand. God, give hope to the weary traveler this Lord's day. God, would you also speak so clearly into the ears, into the spiritual ears and spiritual hearts of those in the room that don't know Christ, or they don't know where they stand with Christ. Father, that they would see Him as their only hope, their only confidence. Father, today is a reminder, and it's a celebration of the gospel. God, we have been made alive in Christ, and so all praise to your great name. God, because salvation is from the Lord. Father, continue to guide our hearts and our minds. God, may we be able to listen to the Spirit as he teaches us this morning. God, do good for and among and with your people this day. God, we thank you for it all. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue in worship.
Though the dark is overwhelming And the brightest lights grow dim Though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men Though the wicked never stumble And abound in every place We will all be humble When we see your face And the demons we've been fighting Those without and those within Will be underneath our feet tonight rise again all our sins will be behind us through the blood of Christ erased and we'll taste your kindness when we see your face we will see
will know in full, just as we have been fully known. Oh, oh, oh. 
From the very moment in the beginning when the serpent enters the garden and utters to Eve and to Adam that did God not say that there is a tree that you cannot eat? And that He inserted doubt that God is not good, that His promises are not true, and that He is not out for the good of His creation and His people. From that point on, when the serpent in congruence with Eve and Adam, when sin entered the world, and God's good creation, His good world, His good people that He has made, departed from Him and fractured. He has been working. He has been, not as, a, not as an effort to, to respond, but as He planned before anything was made, that this story that we find ourselves in that He would send His Son to save and restore. And so from the beginning, from Genesis 3, from that garden when sin enters the world, God has been about the business of restoring the sin and destruction and death that has occurred in His creation, in people, in the world, and through history. And so as we looked last month, Jeremiah 17, we looked at Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, who believes in God. We're looking in 2 Corinthians 7 this morning and for this month to look at the reality of what this trust and what God is doing in that He is bringing about the destruction of sin and death at this moment in the lives of His people. That He has sent His Son to save He has sent His Son to pay and to atone for sin and death, to remove the penalty and punishment that He took and laid upon Himself so that He redeems and brings life to human people. Gathering a people, taking them out of the punishment that they deserved, and giving them, imputing His righteousness upon them, and preparing a place for them, in eternity. And so his work right now, what he has been doing since Genesis 3, what he promised in Genesis 3.15, and what he has been doing and continues to do is bring about restoration from sin and death. And so believer, are you fighting against sin? If you've trusted in Christ, you've been saved by His grace, the effort that you have should be sent to walking in righteousness, putting to death the things of the former way of life, and giving life to what He has done for you. And so this verse we're looking at, genuine repentance in in 2 Corinthians 7.10. So we're memorizing this verse this month. And so just to set it up, set it up, the, the importance of this verse and the sheer importance of what Paul is saying here and what God has given to us. To be contrite, 
sorrowful over sin. To trust in Christ that He he would bring, He would not only impute that righteousness that gives us eternity, but that we would coincide and that our effort and our minds and our hearts would be devoted to Him, that we would walk in that completed work and be transformed little by little and little by little as we perceive the glory of Christ into His image and His likeness. So, big setup. Repeat after me. Let's, let's read out loud this verse and begin memorizing it and committing it to our souls. All right. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 So the New American says, the sorrow that is according to the will of God, the sorrow that, that God desires, the true sorrow over sin is unlike the sorrow of getting caught, unlike the sorrow of difficult circumstances, unlike the sorrow of, as a kid, you get, you get found out for what you've been trying to do, and you get in trouble. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to change of life. It doesn't mean there's not failure, it doesn't mean there's not struggle, but the, the trajectory of the life of the believer is upwards to Christ. It is growing in obedience and growing in faith and growing in likeness. As verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, making holiness, making our lives in holiness in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. God, I thank you for what Christ has done for us, that, that we did not dig ourselves out of a hole of sin and death. It is not something that we accomplish. It is not something by our merit we, we persist in. It is only by Your grace. It is only by Your mercy that we have hope. And that we have, as, as Hebrews 6 says, the anchor of, of hope in life. That we, we are one with You because of Christ. Because He has come and entered into the darkness and death of this world. And He has pursued us. And so God, thank You so much for Your grace, Lord. Your grace and Your mercy on behalf, Lord, of us. That God, You have given, you have, you have showered upon us such mercy and such grace in Christ. And that mercy and grace leads to something. It leads to the restoration of, your, of the remnant of Your people, of Your people on this earth that you are growing into the bride that will sit before you, that will be given to Christ in celebration for all eternity. And so, Father, may we be at war. May we fight, Lord. May we not be complacent in our lives. May we not be haphazard thinking that, oh, it'll be fine, it'll all work out, and we don't have to worry about anything. God, may we be active May we be active in committing our lives to You. May we be active in hearing of Your Word and allowing the light of Your truth to illuminate our hearts, our souls, and what we're doing. And God, may we believe. May we believe Your Word is true and believe in You and give those things over to You that we would walk in faith 
we would be committed to holiness because of what Jesus has done and because of the great grace you've given us. So Father, help us this morning. May we hear from you. May we see you. Lord, would you draw us to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church family, would you take God's word and join me in Matthew's gospel, chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, the final three verses of chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23-25. Last Sunday in verses 18 to 22, we saw how Jesus calls his people to himself to join him in seeking and saving that which is lost. We saw last week that to be a Christian That means that we will be disciples. We will be those who do not merely punch a ticket, if you will, to get out of hell or somehow get around the wrath and punishment of God and then we go and live our lives however we want to live them. To be a Christian is to be one who follows after the Lord Jesus Christ in a death to self and in obedience to the one who called us by his grace and for his glory. To be a Christian means that we have been a calling from God on our lives. Every single believer in the room this morning, you have a call from God on your life to be, it's the language of last week, fishers of men who go out, who make the gospel known, and who call men and women, boys and girls, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're disciples, we're followers, we are fishers. And in thinking about what we saw last week in that section, verses 18 to 22, and all that we said and applied about making the gospel known, and fishing for the souls of men, I think a question at this point would normally and naturally arise in our hearts. If that is the call on our lives, then how do we do that? How do we actually go out and fish for the souls of men? If I am called by Christ to go out into all the world and make disciples then how do I do that? What does that process look like? What should the ministry of the church be? How should it look? How should it function as we seek to be disciples and make disciples? The text before us, Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25, serves for us as a summary of the ministry of Christ in the region of of Galilee. Jesus' earthly ministry is going to last somewhere around three years or so. About half of that time is spent in the northern region of Galilee. And what Matthew's doing for us in verses 23 to 25 is that he is summing up for us what that Galilean ministry 
looks like for Jesus. And as we study the text this morning, we are certainly learning more about Christ and who He is and what He is like. And we are learning about how He carries out the task and the work of ministry. And beloved, we are also being informed this morning about our own ministry. How should it look? What shape should it take? And my prayer for us is that God would continue to shape our hearts and bend our hearts toward that of Christ and the kind of ministry that we see Christ exhibiting before us. That Christ would continue to give shape to our ministry and all that we do and how we serve here as a church body together. That God would continue to make us faithful disciples and faithful fishers of men. As we look at the three verses before us here this morning, I want us to draw out of the text. I want us to draw out four realities. Four realities that must be true for us if we would do ministry like Jesus. So we're saying, Jesus, we're on board. We are wanting and willing. We are ready to do this discipleship and fishing of men. How do we then do that Here's four realities out of the text that must be true for us if we would do ministry like Jesus. Look at the text with me, starting in verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about Him spread throughout all Syria And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What are these four realities? Number one, at the beginning of verse 23, the first reality that must be true for us if we would do ministry like Jesus' church is that we must apply ourselves to the toil of ministry. If we're going to do it like Jesus does it, like Jesus calls us to do it, then we must apply ourselves to the toil of ministry. Look at how verse 23 begins. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee. The verb there, was going, is significant for us. It is helpful for us, and it really gives shape to everything that's taking place in the ministry of Jesus. In, in verse 23, Jesus was going. Now, in the Greek, that verb, was going, is in the imperfect tense. And essentially, all that means for us, and it draws our our, our gaze and our attention to this reality, that Jesus doesn't do ministry for just a little bit and then stops. It is an ongoing, never-ending, continual kind of ministry. It doesn't We don't get the sense in reading this that Jesus does one or two things and then that's it. In the imperfect tense, it reminds us that He is continually going about Galilee, continually doing ministry. This is more than just a 
kind of once a week, twice a week. It's more than just a, a weekend kind of event where Jesus swoops in and teaches a few things, does a few miracles, feeds a few people, and then he heads back home to maybe calmer pastures. This ministry of Christ, it's a continual ministry. It's an ongoing ministry. It's an unending toil and labor for the souls of men. Look again at the beginning of verse 23. It's a ministry that as he was going, he went where? He went throughout all Galilee. It's been estimated that this northern region of Israel there in Galilee, that at this time there were maybe around 300,000 people that lived in this region. Some 200 little towns or little villages. There was no major city in Galilee, maybe where there would be a, a dense population of people. And so if Jesus wanted to do ministry in Galilee, and if he wanted to be where the people were, if he wanted to love them and serve them, then he had to continually go throughout all Galilee. And beloved, isn't this just like our Good Shepherd? Isn't it just like the Good Shepherd to continually, all the time, in unceasing ways, to be among the sheep? He is among them. He is with them. He is throughout their regions in a continual, ongoing, unceasing kind of way. Church, as you read in Matthew, as you read throughout the four Gospels of the life and the ministry of Jesus, you never see Jesus lazily or indifferently commanding things from a distance. You always see Him near and up close and among His people. He's always near. When trouble is at hand, He is there. As we'll see in this text, when pain and sorrow and suffering is present, He doesn't run from that. He runs to that. He is among the sheep of His pasture. Because here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows that people that are bound in their sin, what that requires to reach them is a faithful ministerial toil if they would then be freed from that sin. You can't, you can't do this from a distance, Jesus is showing. If we're going to reach people bound in the chains of sin, wrapped up in the consequences of their sin, we must be among them. Jesus, as the King, He's not a cold, indifferent not caring about the plight of his people kind of king. He's not merely on a throne in a distant, unapproachable palace. Where is he? He's all throughout Galilee. With them, among them, for them. Jesus knows that by themselves, people will not, they cannot free themselves from their sin to follow Him. So what does He do? He goes to them. Church, 
if we would do ministry like Jesus, then we must apply ourselves to the toil of ministry. Why? Because sin, it, it, it binds people in its chains tighter than they themselves even know. Because the consequences of people's sin runs deeper than even they can imagine. We must go to them continually. Why? Because people's hurt is more profound and paralyzing than they understand. And so if we want them, church, we got to go get them. If we want them to be freed from sin, we must be among them continually, unceasingly. If we want them, we must fish for them. If we want them, we must toil and labor and work for them. We must apply ourselves to ministry's ongoing, continual, unending toil. And I emphasize this unending labor of ministry because in so many ways, that's how the New Testament talks about it. Not only do we see that modeled for us in the ministry of Jesus, but as the New Testament continues to develop and, and, and letters are going out to the churches, when we read the language about ministry and its labor and its work, we always see that it requires time, that it requires effort, that it requires sweat, that it requires some long hours and hard work. It requires the continual casting of the net so as to catch the fish and make the disciples. We can't just do it once every now and then and think that's going to suffice. Paul would meet with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He will, or he's on his way to Jerusalem, ultimately then to Rome, where he will die. He's meeting with them and he says this to them. He's seeking to warn them and instruct them. He says, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Or then in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 29. In talking about ministry, Paul would say, for this purpose, I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Paul says, I've been striving, agonizomai, we get our word agony from that. Just this toil, this agonizing labor and, and, and contending even with strife sometimes for the souls of men. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9 for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And then again to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 8, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Church, if I may say it most bluntly, ministry is not for lazy people. Whether it's the one who stands in the pulpit, the one who teaches even the youngest child in the church, it is a labor, an unceasing. We're constantly going and running into it. Sin constantly abounds. Consequences of sin are, 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 are everywhere. All the time, we must consistently be going to it. If we would do ministry like Jesus, I think we must have 
the work ethic of Jesus. If we would do ministry like Jesus, we must go and go and go. Church, eternity is at stake. When we talk about ministry, it is most certainly this moment. And it's most certainly a moment like a Wednesday night with children and adults. But it's a whole lot of other moments too. Throughout the week as we meet with lost people who don't know Christ. As we sit on the couch with hurting people wrapped up in the consequences of their own sin. As we seek to be light into the darkness. It's a continual labor. And if we would do ministry like Christ, we must give ourselves to it in that way. But secondly, if we would do ministry like Jesus, we must teach and preach the gospel. We must teach and we must preach the gospel. Look back in verse 23. As Jesus is going throughout all Galilee, what is He doing? He's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Every Sabbath day, it seems that Jesus would find Himself in one of these local synagogues, in one of these towns, one of these villages in Galilee. These synagogues are these local places of worship and community gathering on the Sabbath day, led by the local rabbi in the instruction of the Torah, the law of God. These synagogues established as places of worship, particularly for those Jews who did not live in close proximity to Jerusalem and temple so that they would have a place that they could go and worship. And as Jesus goes into these synagogues, verse 23, what is He doing? What is the foundation of His ministry there among them? He is teaching them in their synagogues. He's instructing them with the goal of influencing and persuading them. That's what teaching is. It is instructing with the goal that you will be influenced by this teaching and that you will also be persuaded to believe it, apply it, and live it out. It is systematically walking through a subject matter by careful step-by-step explanation. It is the proclamation of a major theme or idea and then walking through carefully, explaining all the parts that make up that larger theme or idea. It's what's at the heart of preaching. It's what's at the heart of biblical, faithful, expository preaching. An explanation of the Word of God. I am cards on the table, honest with you, every single Sunday, I'm trying to persuade you. I am going toe-to-toe with, in this moment, toe-to-toe with the spiritual forces and the heavenly places that would delude you and seek to dissuade you from the truth of God's Word. And in this moment, it's a moment of warfare where I am saying, here is the Word of God. It is right, it is holy, it is true. Believe this. That's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching, instructing. As Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 says, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood 
the reading. Or remember that moment in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, the Emmaus Road? It's resurrection day. A couple of the disciples are walking down the road. They're sad. Jesus shows up. And listen, I love this verse. Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You remember that Acts chapter 8, verse 30 and 31 moment? Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, he runs up on the chariot. The Ethiopian eunuch is there reading a section of scripture from Isaiah. Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian eunuch responds, how can I unless someone helps me understand? So Philip begins to teach and to preach Christ. Beloved, if we would do ministry like Jesus, we must teach the Bible. We must teach it to the youngest child. We must teach it to the oldest adult. We do not merely gather to just check off some spiritual boxes. We gather to instruct and to teach according to the Word of God. But then secondly, in that phrase in verse 23, Jesus is also doing what? He's proclaiming the Gospel. He's proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. He's proclaiming the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. Good news about what? It is the good news of what God has done for His people in His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the good news of how God saves His people from their sins through His Son. The gospel is nothing more than that, and it is nothing less than that. And Jesus, as he goes throughout all Galilee, is proclaiming the gospel. Beloved, if we would do ministry like Jesus, we must proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel? We've been instructed in recent years to never assume the gospel, for when you assume it, you lose it. So what is the gospel? The the gospel story, beloved, does not start in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the gospel story begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The gospel story begins with God. It begins with a holy, a good, a kind God who gives to his created people, those made in his image, a good, holy law. That if you would honor me, if you would obey me, you will walk with me. We will commune together. God creates man, places them in this beautiful garden in a land, a special land for a special people. He will walk with them and fellowship with them. That's why we're created, by the way. You exist to be in a relationship with God. And he walks with man in the garden in the cool of the day. Until, as we heard From Pastor Matthew earlier, Genesis 3, doubt creeps in, a disbelief of God, a distrust of His Word and of the certain consequences of eating from the tree which God told him not to eat from. Mankind rebels. The relationship is shattered. The good creation is now marred and twisted, tainted, perverted. Romans chapter 8 tells us that creation continues to groan, longing for the day of redemption. Everything is broken. Relationships are broken. Creation is broken. Primarily the relationship with God is severed. 
And because man is now in him and herself sinful, there is nothing that you or I can do to make ourselves right with God but God according to his mercy, but God according to his kindness gives us Jesus. The perfect law keeper. The better Adam. He comes and does what the first Adam failed to do. He perfectly keeps God's law. And by nature of his perfect law-keeping righteousness, he then is the right, the fitting, the only substitute as a payment for sin. And so he goes to the cross. For the joy set before him, he goes to the cross. He dies there. He despises the shame for the glory of God and the good of his people. He takes the punishment, the wrath, and the death that is rightly poured out because of my sin, your sin. And he dies there. And then mystery of of, of all glorious mysteries and exchanges made. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf so that what? You might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Beloved, it is incumbent upon every human being in this room. It is incumbent upon every human being on the planet to believe this. To believe this, to believe it now, to believe it today, to turn to Christ, trusting that He is the only means of your salvation. You cannot do it on your own. You will not do it on your own. And by God's grace and for God's glory, He gives you Jesus. Come to Christ today. And as Christ is going throughout all Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that's what he's talking about. And beloved, we must be so crystal clear on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. We live in a confused time, a confused age. And we must be so crystal clear in this matter. The gospel is not secondary, albeit important, doctrinal issues. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for His people through His Son, Jesus Christ. You don't have to have a particular type of eschatology, what you believe about the end times. You don't have to have a particular type of eschatology to get to heaven. And that's probably a good thing. Because we're all very confused. But what you do have to have is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross and at the empty tomb for you. The gospel is not the fruit of the gospel. What do I mean by that? When a person places faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when they are born again, there is now good, righteous fruit that will start being produced out of their lives. They will begin to love their neighbor and serve in ways that they never have. They will begin to demonstrate that fruit of the Spirit of Galatians chapter 5. But beloved, the fruit of the gospel is not the gospel. And we live in a time where The fruit of the gospel is being said to be the thing that you must then do in order to be right with God. And unfortunately, that message gets proclaimed even in the church. Just be kind is not the gospel. 
Should believers be kind? Absolutely. If the Spirit is in you, will the Spirit produce kindness? Absolutely. But who among us can be kind enough to get to heaven? None of us. The fruit of the gospel in how we treat the poor, how we treat the immigrant among us. Should we love and serve the poor? Matthew 25 makes absolutely clear that that is yes. That we should love them, that we should serve them and care for them. But just caring for the poor, the immigrant among us, that's the fruit of the gospel, not the gospel. When, when there is racial injustice, when we see that, yeah, we should be a part of seeking to balance the scales of justice. But that's not the gospel. That's the fruit of the gospel. Don't mix them up. You must place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone if you would be right with God. Believe the gospel. Church, proclaim that gospel. Thirdly, if we would do ministry like Jesus, we must care for people's needs. We must care for people's needs. Look at the end of verse 23. Jesus going throughout all Galilee. He's teaching and preaching, yes, but that's not all. He's healing every kind of disease. Every kind of sickness among the people. He's healing them. Therapeuo. He's tending to them. Treating them. We get our word therapy or therapeutic from that word healing there in verse 23. In the case of Jesus, these are miraculous healings. And notice the language there in verse 23. He heals every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus comes in total, complete, perfect compassion toward the diseased and the sick. J.C. Ryle said this, These miracles, not least, are intended to show us Christ's heart. He is a most compassionate Savior. He rejected no one who came to Him. He refused no one, however loathsome and diseased. He had an ear to hear all, a hand to help all, a heart to feel for all. There is no kindness like His. His compassions fail not. Here's my fear. My fear is that there are many who want to preach and teach the gospel, but there are few who want to get down in the dirty of people's lives. My fear is that there are many who want this moment without actually getting around the sick and the diseased and the dirty and those bearing the consequences of their sin. We must remember, church, that people with problems and needs are not a hindrance to ministry They are our ministry. People and their problems are not an impediment that we've somehow got to jump over or skirt around so that we can get to this moment. 
This ought to be the easiest moment for a pastor throughout the whole week. I'm here and you're there. I'm preaching, you're listening. There's no questions, there's no pushback. It's nothing. This is the easiest thing I do all week long. We need to remember that we win the right to be heard in this moment by leaning into people's lives and doing the hard and the dirty and the necessary. And we do that because Jesus first did that with me. And Jesus first did that with you. People are not an impediment. Their problems don't get in the way of ministry. That is our ministry. As Jesus meets the needs of the people, two things are happening. Number one, by these miraculous healings, Jesus is proving that the gospel is true. I am who I tell you that I am. And here are these miracles that show that the gospel that I'm preaching to you is true. These miraculous healings are never meant to be the point. In His compassion, Jesus loves people well so that, he, so that they hear Him when He preaches the Gospel. And then secondly, by meeting their needs and healing their diseases, beloved, Jesus is pointing those people to a better day. He's giving them hope in that moment. He's pointing them to a better day as we see it displayed in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. That on that day, capital D, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Church, when we do ministry like Jesus, and when we get down in the dirty of people's lives, you're showing them that the gospel that you're seeking to proclaim, it's true. It's true. And you're seeking to point them to the hope of a better day through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, if we would do ministry like Christ, we must serve the nations. We must serve the nations. Look in verses 24 and 25. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. They brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. As Jesus teaches, preaches, loves and serves people well, news spreads throughout all Syria in verse 24. Syria, the region north of Galilee, Damascus, major city in that area. Look down in verse 25, large crowds begin to follow him, not just in the region of Galilee, but from the Decapolis, a region on the eastern side of the Jordan River comprised of Ten cities. They're coming to him in verse 25 from Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. Well, if we turn over to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, parables about the kingdom, its nature, what it's like. 
Look in verse 31. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like this mustard seed. Plants, it grows, it's larger than all the other garden plants so that The birds of the air come and nest in its branches. King Jesus is calling people from every tribe and tongue, nation, to come to Him. To bow before Him. To be saved by Him. To worship Him. He is drawing the nations and the peoples to Himself. And when they get there, what happens in verse 24? Again, He heals them. He's serving the nations. There's not a single person, there's not a single ethnicity that is barred from access to coming to Jesus. He heals them all. Because He's the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 103, verses 2 and 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. They come to Him From beyond the Jordan, the nations come to Him because He's the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 17. For I will restore you to health and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying, it's Zion. No one cares for her. Jesus comes as the fulfillment to His people, to the nations to say, come to Me. And beloved, we get a glimpse of the fulfillment of this in Revelation chapter 5 when we see that men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are gathered before the throne. Church, if we would do ministry like Jesus, we must serve the nations. We must go to them. We must send our money. We must use our time. We must use our giftings and abilities to make the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ known to the nations. God's plan is to bring the nations to Himself. God's plan is that in the new creation to have people from every tribe, tongue, people and nation before the throne. And He calls us To be fishers of men who go to the nations and catch His fish. Make no mistake about it, we are His disciples, His followers, and there's a calling on our lives to go. To be fishers of men. Church, apply yourself to the toil of that ministry. I get it. It takes a long time sometimes. Sin is messy complicates everything makes everything hard it twists and taints and perverts all things and all people the easiest thing in all the world is to say nope not doing that i got enough crazy and hard in my own little life i can't be dealing with everybody else and their stuff out there maybe you would even say i don't even know that i'm equipped to do that remember last week 
Jesus doesn't call people according to the world's standards. If you are in Christ and His grace has come to you, He intends to use you for gospel and kingdom advancement to apply yourselves to the toil of ministry. Oh church, let's not waste our lives on the things that don't matter. Give ourselves to this toil. Teach and preach the gospel. Do you teach at Faith Family? Oh, open the book and give them Jesus, dear saint. Show them the beauties and the mysteries of the gospel. Give them Christ. Care for people's needs. Go to them. Be among them. Seek them out. Meet their needs. Show them the beauty of Christ. Serve the nations, church. As God gives us opportunities to go and to serve, pray, give, send, go, so that people might hear the gospel and be saved. Praying that God again shapes our hearts and our ministries in this way for His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've sent Christ to us. We couldn't, we couldn't get to you, so God, you came to us. So what that means is that if we are in Christ, we must go to those bound up in their sin, those who are struggling even through the consequences of their sin. Maybe... Maybe they're not the ones that have sinned, but somebody else has sinned against them and they're bearing the consequences. Father, we, we go to that. Give us a heart for it. Help us to define and shape our ministry at Faith Family so that it engages not just those who are clean and have it all together. God, help us to go to the sick who have need of a, of a physician. God, may we preach and teach Christ to them so that they might hear the gospel, so that they might be saved by the gospel. God, help us not to be those who love to thunder forth truth from a pulpit or in a classroom setting, but are not willing to get our, our hands dirty in the work of ministry. God, deal with our hearts in this matter. God, however you need to do that. For the one again, who's apart from Christ, they're still dead in their sins. Help them to believe the gospel right now, O oh God. Draw them to yourself. Give them the gift of faith. God, by your Spirit in them, help them to respond. Repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray this in his name.